Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Kodiak Shack podcast. Today, we have Emily Murphy. She's done a lot of stuff. So she worked for GSA for about six years. She was the, she just told me, it was the senior... Senior fellow. Se- well, senior fellow, yep, in at, uh, at George, George Mason. Mason. Yep, Bender's backing me up today. Right, cut. Yep, yeah. No, First I like this. She went to law school. With That's true. Law. And uh, where was it? UVA? Oh, to UVA for law school. Um, I was the administrator of GSA. I served there with the Bush and Trump administrations and uh, spent nine years working on the Hill, the House Armed Services Committee and for the House Small Business Committee. I'm currently a senior fellow at George Mason University and love talking procurement policy. Look at this. So she does it way better than me. I don't know why I tried to do introductions. It's like this, this will make more sense to Bender, but you know, when, in, when they make the fighter pilot, call what the picture looked like before letting the (laughs) combat control, like the actual person whose job it is to call the picture. They make us say it just so we can be bad at it. And then they let the the professionals do it. We're going to keep that (laughs) in because, uh, because I'm okay. I'm not, I'm not worried about it, but uh, so so I'm going to ask my first question. (laughs) Send it. This is still good. Right. So when you say you're the administrator of the GSA, that's like the head of the GSA. Is that for four years? Yes. So from 2017 to 2021, I was the, Senate confirmed head. Yep. Dang. Yeah. How are so the now, Senate confirmation hearings? Was that pretty rough or was that not too bad? Uh, actually, the confirmation hearing was went pretty well. It, I got confirmed unanimously. So that was, oh. that part was good. Good for you. Congrats. Nice. I think. So, so how, so, uh, so obviously was your plan solid? Was your plan, uh, to, um, to always get into the GSA space, obviously you went to law school. Uh, so what, what was your kind of goal? And then how do you kind of end up going uh, to work at the Hill and then at GSA? So it's all serendipity. I um, moved to D.C. right after I graduated from college, thinking I'd be here for a year. My first boss was the chairman of the House Small Business Committee back in 1997. I was the junior staffer. Junior staffer gets assigned the issues no one else wants. So I got assigned government contracting. Uh, and liked it enough that I actually went to law school, became a government contracts lawyer. Uh, and then when I graduated from law school, I went and practiced as a, 
as a government contracts lawyer for a few years. And then President Bush's administration brought me into SBA to help with their government contracting programs, including SBIR, um, and then went from there over to GSA because they were having some contracting issues and they needed a chief acquisition officer, left, went to the private sector, came, went back to the Hill for another six years, then went back to GSA as the administrator uh, before leaving uh, about a year and a half ago. So it seems like you have an affinity for uh, government contracts and uh, small business. I do. I love government contracting. I love small business government contracting. I love looking at all the ways you can. I think government contracting is such a great tool for getting efficiency for and economic development, but also just getting results. Because you can have all the great policies you want to, but unless you know how to buy something, you can't get it done. So... What I will say as an end user, and Bender can probably echo this, is end users don't know how to buy things. And when an end user goes to contracting and says, I want this thing, especially when it's an innovative thing and it's a one-off product, no one knows how to purchase these things unless they are probably in your shoes or have dealt with it previously. So how can you kind of uh, demystify the process and like, hey, why is this a useful tool? And why is it that it seems like to end users that it's not as, as user-friendly? Meaning uh, how is government contracting a useful tool or SBIR a useful tool or something in, well, yeah, so, in particular? So the small business side of it. So how is it that okay. you see it utilized and, and things being procured and, and acquired via these, these contracts? So if you go historically back to it, um, Remember President Eisenhower's uh, farewell speech where he warned about the military-industrial complex? Yeah. Small business is sort of the antidote to that, the counterbalance. And so as long as you've got small businesses making and innovating, you're always going to have some competition. You're not going to have to worry that you've just got all your eggs in a couple really big baskets. And small businesses can be more nimble. They don't have as much overhead. And, the, and you've got unique contracting tools. So you can use an 8A contract to just do a, a sole source award for a small dollar value contract. You can do actually anything under the micro purchase threshold to a small business um, whenever you, without any competition whatsoever. It's automatically set aside for small business. So you can go ahead and do that. As you get larger, you can do small business set asides. They can be faster, especially if you use an existing multiple award contract vehicle. And actually, one of the reasons I really like the SBIR program is that by the time you hit phase three contracting, if you know how to do that phase three contract, you can create a multiple award contract and do really fast task order based contracting. So you're buying something truly innovative pretty quickly. And how does that work? Because I've talked to a lot of people who, I mean, myself included, Mm -hmm. I said, this company's under a SIPR 2. They want to move to a Cyber 3 and we want to be the people they move to a Cyber 3 with and contracting says, we can't, there's, there's, we don't know how to do a Cyber 3. We have to do the normal contracting uh, acquisitions process. Why did, why does that happen? Or was I just an outlier? No, I think you've got a very common experience. I think part of the issue is that there are so few direct phase threes that most contracting officers encounter it only once or twice in their career, if that. And so when I was at GSA, we actually decided we'd spend some time and money training our contracting officers in the assisted acquisition side on how to do phase threes, which is, was an interesting decision because GSA doesn't have SBIR authority. 
it's not an R&D agency. But we talked to SBA and we agreed we could do those phase threes on behalf of other agencies. Actually, any agency can do a phase three, but we, we'd get that expertise. And since then, GSA has been able to go in and work first with Air Force, now uh, throughout the Department of Defense, but with and with other agencies. They'll go in and they'll set up an IDIQ contract for that phase three for the agency, and then the agency can just place task orders against it. So it looks a lot more like their regular process. It's also pretty, you know, a lot faster uh, once it's set up. And so, and I think, and I think over eight billion dollars that way, also. And I it's think a, that's what people don't realize because I know multiple companies who, because it, I think people conflate a phase three SIBR. So everybody, we've talked about SIBRs on the podcast before, but if this is your first podcast, so a SIBR is a small business innovation research contract. And there's SIBR one, twos, and threes. A SIBR one is a, is a pretty much a demo is, Hey, can you, in the most basic form, produce this product? And then you get that contract, which is, uh, I think it's like three to six months, uh, normal timeline. And again, I should probably let the expert do this, but Emily, I'll try and back me up. Um, and they're normally like 50 to a hundred and some thousand dollars. Sibber two is you've already done a Sibber one and made good, or you have an off the shelf product that is already in commercial use outside the military. And you're just going to direct to a Sibber two. That Sibber two can be anywhere from a couple hundred thousand all the way up to a couple million in some cases, which I am still baffled at what makes one worth more than another. And then once you make good on a Sibber two, which is about 12 to 18 months of contract, now you're available to do a Sibber three. And a lot of companies view a Sibber three like full commercialization this thing is palmed for and it's in the you know government contracts like with the dod but it's not it is just a now we are buying a commercial quality product that can be a year contract or a couple year contract and i think people need to understand that those are two separate things you don't have to become a lockheed martin to get a cyber three you just have to have a commercial product that you have a that an organization in the dod wants that can afford to buy it Emily, did I say that correct? Help me out where I screwed up. You got up. it right. There's another part that I think is fun also, which is the phase three doesn't have to be a prime contract. So if you're looking at a Lockheed or a Northrop or a Boeing, the government can say, we want this technology. Please go and use this phase three technology. And, and then they can direct that that be a sole source subcontract. And, so and how do they do that? Always have they, they can put it into their, into their requirements and say, whoever wins this contract this is the technology you're going to use, or they can frankly just direct it as part of a subcontracted subcontract under one of their existing uh, contract vehicles. So this is something, it's almost, it's not exactly, but it's a lot like treating it almost as government furnished equipment or material. So they're just saying, okay, this is what we want. We're prepared to pay for it. You're going to use this technology, but we're going to buy it through you and incorporate it in, which is great because it makes it easier. I mean, the small business keeps its data rights. It's, the government's using it as part of an existing contracting action. But the, the downside of that is we don't see it very often. Like you don't get the transparency. The rest of the of the world doesn't know that there was a phase three. And it's one thing we're actually bad at as a government is tracking where we've had phase three awards. It's really hard to find them. And why is, why is that so difficult? Because you would think like we have a champion. We said, hey, look at this. This product mm-hmm. went from beginning to a commercialized software, hardware, technology, 
And now it, it, it's good. It's useful. People are using it and somehow we can't communicate that. So I have two questions. One, wh- how do people learn about this? So if, if you run into a contracting officer, if you're just saying like, Hey, for my own, you know, knowledge, I want to learn about all these rules. Like, are there any AFIs or Air Force, what is it? Air Force information? AFWorks. Instruction. Yeah. So through yeah. AFWorks. And then two, what AFWorks is a current? Has a great weekly podcast on this, actually. Oh, nice. Uh, I'm not right. Not, I'm sorry, not a, they do a conference call that they do every week. Gotcha. I was going to um, say, steal my thunder. find out about the opportunities. They, not a podcast, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> but if you're a small business and you want to learn how to do it, they're the PTACs are great. They, you know, um, small business development centers are good at it. They, but there are, I mean, there are ways to learn about it. The problem we've got though is once someone's gone in and done a phase one and done a phase two, and there's, you know, there's money that's invested in outreach and trying to bring more companies in. SBA tracks all the phase one awards and all the phase two awards, but we never track all the outcomes. So if you go to sbir.gov, it tells you who got phase one, phase two. It doesn't tell you what the results of phase one or the results of phase two were, only what they thought they were going to do, which is itself sort of hard because you, it leaves a question as to what was actually accomplished. And if I, a contracting officer, want to go and I'm looking for a technology and want to use you know, this potentially this opportunity to do it quickly and easily, I don't actually know whether that technology is there, um, yeah. whether they got the results. And then if I go and look at something like FPDS through SAM, uh, the Federal Procurement Data System, there is no field in there that says this is an SBIR phase three. So you don't actually have a way to track prime contracts that are phase threes. There's no designation to it. So the only way we know about phase three is anecdotal or expensive studies where we send GAO or we send someone else out to track down and hunt, you know, like figure out what happened. And I think that that's just a, such an opportunity we're missing because we're not celebrating the successes and we're frankly not letting other agencies or even other parts of the same department capitalize on those, what we've learned and the, the R&D that's been funded out of, out of the government. Is it because the diffuse nature, nature of the CIBR 3? Because the CIBR 3 contracts can be written at individual bases. So AFWorks doesn't have that oversight as much of the company that we wrote a Cyber 2 for at AFWorks didn't come back mm-hmm. to us for the Cyber 3. So we don't know kind of what happened there. So there's got to be some sort of feedback loop in that way. It would be good if there was a feedback loop. But remember that a phase one could be taking place at AFWorks. The phase two could be picked up over at NavAir. I see. It's it's so, and the phase three could be any, you know, at NAVBAC. Um, so it could be going, you know, across departments, across agencies. The phase three could be over at GSA with you know, or at, um, at the Department of Interior. There's nothing that says the phase three has to be in any way related to who did the phase one or the phase two. So you're right. AFWorks isn't going to know about that. But even more than that, no one's going to know about it. So when Congress is doing oversight, they don't have a way of going in and saying, here are the phase threes. The best they can do is look in and say, all right, Vader.com, how many contracts did you get? Can I then reverse engineer that? Or I can call you up and ask you. So because, and we're kind of jumping ahead here, but now Mm -hmm. my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, because there's new uh, kind of 
restraints or constraints put on the SIBR process to how much innovation SIBR ones and two money you got versus how much commercialization money that you've made. How are they going to go about figuring that out without calling each company individually? Well, they're going to require the company's report. Report back to SBA, though. Okay. Um, and that's going to be interesting. So it, they're going to, but it's the agencies then, that then have to apply it. So we're going to need some more data. But again, we're instead only asking the companies still, did you make it from phase one to phase two? And what did you do once you made a phase two? How much money did you make off the phase two? Um, you know, once you made it past the phase two. So the we're not actually asking, did you get phase three awards? Or how well did you do on that phase one or phase two? So the new rule says, essentially, if you, if you do a lot of phase ones, the, you know, we're going to increase the standard and say that for every, for every phase one that you get, you must get, or every two phase ones you get, you have to have one uh, phase two. Okay. And that's if you've got more than 50 awards. If you've got more than 20 awards, you've got to do one phase two for every, uh, for every four phase ones. So 25% success rate. It would be interesting to know where those percentages came from because I always think about um, you know, the light bulb and how we developed the light bulb. And if you look up Thomas Edison quotes, you'll find all sorts of quotes that say it took him a thousand chances or um, experiments to come up with the light bulb. You'll find other quotes where it says 10,000. It's somewhere in there. It's a lot of times he had to try to get to the light bulb. Light bulb's a good thing. Um, we continue to innovate on it. So it's, it's interesting to figure out how we came up with the, you either have to have a 50% success rate or a 25% success rate, depending on how many of these awards you do. If you're a low, uh, if you, if, if you don't do a lot of SIVRs, we're not going to apply that standard. And it's over a five year period. The next part of it, they said, okay, we're going to look at how many phase twos have you done? And if you've gotten more than a hundred, we want you to, um, get $450,000 of sales or investments per phase two. Um, so that's, it, again, we're looking, you know, what's the outcome from it? Uh, but we've not created a system to figure out, is there a substantial outcome for them, right? We're looking at what is the numeric outcome? That's a good product. You know, it's a good way of tracking. It's, a, it's as good of a measure as, as most measures you're going to find. But it doesn't actually give you the ability to go out there and say, hey, this phase two developed X technology. X technology is now available in the, in the commercial and federal marketplace for easy buying. So it's, we've lost track of why we're doing the program, which is to make, you know, we're trying to put some rigor around making sure it's not abused, but we've lost track of actually trying to quantify what the success is and make that success more widely, widely available. When it's really tough because when you're, when you're doing innovation, there is going to be a little of that like trial and error testing. So there is going to be some breakage there, some loss in, in, you know, funds that Mm -hmm. don't develop anything, but the reality is like you're, you're learning. And I think one of the things that's kind of tough for me to wrap my mind around is we don't currently have a good metric on the success rates, but now we're implementing restrictions to assess metrics that we don't currently have for future metrics. And it's like, we don't even know, we haven't even assessed our current success rate or our SIBR three commercialization, let alone what the future will look like with those things. So how do we, I mean, they seem arbitrary 
in nature if you don't know what you're currently doing with the current sibbers. And the idea that it's going to be that every line of study should have the same success rate. Because mm-hmm. uh, remember, sibbers go for everything from pharmaceutical to manufacturing technologies to weapon systems to AI to, you know, to really you know, truly cutting edge, bleeding edge technologies. The, I always thought one of the real benefits of phase one was that you fail early. I mean, failing on a $50,000 investment is about where we want the people to be failing. I don't want them failing once I'm spending a billion dollars. I yeah. want them to fail early and get that and learn what, what didn't work so that we can then develop what will work. Yeah. And I'm, it's a, it's a good process. You know, it's a good, like when you think about it, the more you learn, you're like, this is definitely well thought out. It's not, it's not poorly uh, created, but I agree. I think there is, and you think if I, if I am a F-16 pilot and I say, man, I really need something to help with back pain and we need somebody to innovate a something to fit on people's lower backs while they're in the airplane, that's probably a much easier target than some biopharmaceutical, like, you know, big reach for something or AI produced, you know, something or other. So it makes sense that some of these are a much bigger ask. And I assume that's where the the pricing in a cyber contract may lie as well as the amount of R&D, the amount of development that's required. That's where a cyber may see a larger price tag. Well, the phase twos, you mean, that, that's part of it that you'll see in there. You also see for, through, for example, um, some of the Air Force, where they'll find matching funds that will come from outside of the cyber program. And that means that you've got a stakeholder who's really invested in it. And you'll see, so you'll get additional funds, like Strat 5 funds or Tech 5 funds. So that mm-hmm. might be another reason you get a larger dollar value. And so that's where that money would actually be categorized at SBIR.gov as Cyber 2 funds. Because you're like, why is the Cyber 2 worth $2 million? It's because they got a TACFI that throttled up the income or the money. It could it could be that, or it could be that it was a higher value, or, or it was something that the original SBIR funds they felt it was worth putting more towards this because it was going to be more expensive because it was more critical because it was something different. So when they start at seven fifty, they usually go up to about you know, one point five. They can go higher, um, and with matching funds, you can get an extra million or two thrown in. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. So we'll. Yeah. Uh, oh, Bender, you got anything? I do. Well, so Send it. my perspective in this podcast is to be the end user who has no idea how this works, but wants the stuff. But just so I'll ask general questions like that. So strat buys and tax buys, where do they, who owns that money? This isn't AFWorks stuff, right? This is it, other organizations or. So AFWorks is coordinating it actually on behalf of the Air Force. So they, it's come from other pools of money where it's not, it's, so remember, SBIR funds are 3% of all extramural R&D that the agency is doing in that year. And then from that 3%, you take away a, little, a small percentage for the administrative costs of the programs, which leaves you with whatever the budget's going to be. Um, and as R&D for the agency goes up, extramural R&D goes up, so does SIBR. As it goes down, so does SIBR. Okay. So there's no extra appropriation for it. The TACFI and the STRATFI come from other appropriations buckets where they say we've gotten the money for fill in the blank program or this priority. 
and we're willing to take a few million of that and put it towards matching on this because we found that there is a real correlation between what's coming out of this phase one, phase two. And then sometimes remember, there might be a second phase two following a phase two, or there might be a third phase two following it. We feel it's worth it. This is really something that's going to have such value. We want to put more money towards it um, because we want to either speed up the development or we, because we really want to test it out before we take it to that next phase. Okay. And so, and, sorry, Vader, you can follow that. Oh, I was just going to add, and, and it's more a question for me, is that this can also be from another base. So say you're under a Civer 2 from one base mm -hmm. and another base says, oh, I want that as well. Uh, a TACFI or a STRATFI, which I don't know if you can explain those uh, acronyms, which they are quite uh, in-depth, but that is also a way where another organization can kind of get into that Civer 2 and add funding to get what they're looking for as well? Um, it's, it's more that you could, if, if the Phase 2 funding isn't available from one base, you can find it from another base or I from see. another agency. Um, so it could be a, it could be base by base. It could be service by service. It could be department by department. It could be agent. You know, it, it can go back and forth. And that's actually one of the cool things about when you think R and D. You might start off to develop something for one program, say at NASA, but you find out that it actually has military applications. So you'd move it over at that point in time. Maybe the phase two belongs there instead. Uh, so. STRATFI is strategic funding increase and TACFI is tactical funding increase. And so they're both intended to be the ability to get sort of matching funds when you've got a, which means you've brought a customer to the table um, who's also willing to invest in it so that they'll then put some extra money towards it. And so at that point in time, they use a little bit of the extra funding that's, that's available to match what, the, what someone else is bringing to the table. And that's what I think the biggest, as a kind of dumb end user, the biggest difference I see between Stratfys and TACFIs is TACFI tops out in the low $1 million range. And Stratfys. Yeah. And Stratfys, then Stratfys. So three to 15 million. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's kind of like, hey, how much money are you looking for? Do you need for this? And then correct me if I'm wrong, the Stratfys require matching funds from like a venture capital or something. So you need, they need outside funds. So if the military's given them, you know, t like 2 million, then a, some outside entity needs to provide an additional 2 million. You need to have some outside yeah, source of funding. Um, it can either be from you know, private funds. It can be there. Sometimes, you know, there's a question is, could you use funds from another, from the state? if it's something that's going to have an application at the state level and that remains to be like sort of fleshed out, but it, it does mean that you've got multiple sources of funding coming in. Whereas you know, TACFI is really, you know, to get the real money um, you're, you're getting defense only money at that point. Have to get strapped by you're bringing in some private money as well. I see. Cool. So then, uh, Oh, Bender, you got something else? No, well, I have a ton of questions, but I'll, if you got a, well, I was going to, I was going to move laterally to GSA. Uh, so if you want to talk cyber stuff, uh, okay, yeah. Right before I go to GSA. So if there's a program and there's a lot of these floating around in air force fire squad, which mm -hmm. again is the perspective that I have. So there's this great program that some so that we're just using because the program that the air force has actually given us is not working. So like a scheduling program. 
for instance. Okay. So MyBase wants to use this scheduling program that we found. Um, so we can put it under SIBR in theory, if MyBase has a Spark cell or whatever AppWorks does. If a bunch of other, I guess my question is, if every fighter base is using the same program, which there are things out there that we actually are doing that, how does it then breach? How do we get to that phase three? Like whose voice is required? So if all fighter pilots want this, we don't get to be the ones who say, yep, this is something that we're going to, you know, put into a phase three so, or palm in the budget. Like who does that, who do our voices need to go to? I guess is my question. So it, it, they need to be going up. And so, you know, if you've got, if, it's yes, it's great that you want to use it. Um, unless you've got a program manager who's got dollars in their hands, that's where you get to phase three. So it's got to be money that's not in that R and D bucket anymore, or that's not in the th phase. Th I should say that's not in the SBIR three percentage set aside of that. The you know, purchasing off. That's what makes it a phase three. It can either be commercial funding, or someone's buying it, which doesn't help you at all. Um, it's great because it makes it more commercially available. Maybe then it'll rise to the level that someone's going to buy it within the department. But if you're, what you're looking to do is how do I get my hands on this? How do I get this implemented where I live? Um, the answer is going to be the program manager who's got the money has to go and say, we want to buy this. We've seen it come through. You know, it went through phase one, phase two, someplace else, here, wherever it did. We're ready to buy it as a commercial item. And here's and at that point, they don't actually have to run a competition. Um, they can just go ahead and buy it. But as it, we mentioned, most contracting officers don't know how to do that. Mm -hmm. So at that point in time, I'd suggest they call up GSA and call up the Assisted Acquisition Service and say, hey, we've got a requirement and we've got mon money. Here's our requirement. You then MIPR over the money. GSA will set up an IDIQ for you, and then you can just start placing task orders against it. Okay. So now the agency can do that on their own. Also, they don't have to use GSA. Um, but as I said, it, we're also in a situation where if you look at contracting officers, right now there's no appropriations, so they're not able to do their contracting right now. Last year, fiscal 22, they didn't get the appropriation done until almost six years, six months through the year, which meant they had to do all of their contracting in six months. So doing 12 months worth of contracting in six months. Anything that they can offload or make easier, and that's sort of the advantage of both GSA or something like the, the SBIR authorities, where you can take something that's proven to work, that's made it through a phase one and a phase two, like beta testing almost, um, and then you can bring it in at that point. So you, you've got a lot more confidence in what you're buying, as well as it being easier or faster to buy. So the So kind of two things there, because... I think that bringing in GSA to make the IDIQ, but I've I've heard uh, two things, which IDIQ is indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity for anybody who wasn't initially tracking, uh, which means it's effectively like, uh, I don't have a great way to explain it other than think about like a, a bank account that, or like a cr line of credit that has a maximum amount that you can borrow against. And anytime you have extra dollars, you put it into that line of credit and then you borrow, then the company uses that money and then it'll cap out at a couple million. You know, you cap it at, oh, go ahead and take it away. If you, I, I want to be it. careful because I don't want to see anyone to get in trouble. You can't really okay. bank the funds. People okay. got in trouble for doing that about 15 years, about longer than 15 years. 2004 was a bad year for GSA because 
agencies had been banking funds in some of their contract vehicles. Uh, you actually ha- you have to, but you can set up this contract vehicle saying, "Hey, we know we've got a long term need for or for you know this service or this product, this type of of of, uh, of buy, and we know that it might be something that we're not going to buy all at once. It's not just one time we're going to do it. We, we're going to buy it." A little bit here, we'll buy a little bit more there. It might change slightly as to what we're buying, but the underlying nature of what it is is going to remain the same. So over the next four, you know, one, two, three, four, five years, we're going to set up this contract. And as we have money, we'll bring the money and the requirement over and we'll buy what we can at that point. And then when we've got a little bit more money or our requirement develops some more, we'll bring some more money and we'll buy and we'll buy some more. But we agree that we're never going to go above this ceiling. We're never going to put more than this amount of money on the contract. Uh, and so that's more, it, it's, a, it's a faster way of, rather than having to do all of the terms and conditions and everything up front, you're just bringing over really the, the requirements as they come, uh, as they're funded. So you can send those over a little bit faster. And then the the thing I always struggled with in my, in my experience as a, as a innovation lead, um, was, you know, cause I always recommend it go as high as you can, as fast as you can, you know, as long as you're making progress and you're answering, uh, or you're making good on your contracts, you know, request to talk with the next higher level. So, you know, I'd push them to the, the group commander and then the wing commander. Mm-hmm. And then in, in all reality, which as an end user, you know, just uh, line IP fighter pilot, I had no idea that the wing commander, even though he has a massive budget, a lot of that money is already allocated. He doesn't have a ton of money when you're like, hey, I need $800,000 or a million dollars. He may not have that money lying around. So what would you say? Because And then even people have gone to like ACC, which is Air Combat Command, A3, which is operations, uh, and they say, you know, and maybe not the commander of that, but somebody there, and they say, hey, we don't have any money. Uh, like, what would you say for, for end users who are like, we, we have a product we want, we want to move forward, but our wing doesn't have money. Our, our operations command doesn't have money. Like where, where is that just kind of the talking point? Cause people don't want to overspend or is it, they literally don't have money and where could, where could you realistically find it? Uh, I'm a big fan of sweeps. So I know you're saying go as big as as you can, as fast as you can. When, when I was trying to do something new, what would usually do is see as the end of the fiscal year was approaching, what money hasn't been obligated that was appropriated that we haven't, but we haven't been able to get it onto a contract yet. Okay. Sweep it up and then, and, and put it towards a priority. Gotcha. Uh, Because frequently what, what people, you know, what's done is that there's more money, that's allocated towards something that can actually be spent in that year, especially with the contracted uh, contracting cycles and with the appropriation cycle being off these days. And so you've got this compressed year that you're trying to do all your acquisition. So not everything's getting out, which means that there's, you don't want money to expire on September 30th at midnight. So back up a couple months. Okay. How much can we realistically think of this is going to get spent if it can't be spent, let's let's take it off of the program. It's not going to be spent on, and let's put it towards one of our priorities. And so, what is is sweeps an actual vehicle, or is it like how would no, someone just, use it? We called it sweeping up the money. 
I you, you, so, it would get swept up. Um, and it was sort of the, if you don't use it, you lose it kind of money. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So because I've been told that like, hey, we can't spend this money on that. So like, hey, we're not spending all our O&M money, our operations and maintenance, I think. money. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But we're not spending our own. You, you, you okay. have to spend money according to the like, when Congress appropriates it for a specific purpose that has to be spent for things within that purpose. Unless you want to go back to Congress and say, hey, let us reprogram. Yeah. And that's a. It happens regularly, but it's also how much you want to reprogram can either be a, you know, fairly administrative you know, function to being a really big deal. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it's you, you want to be careful with those re- reprogramming requests. So if you're trying to sweep up these funds, you know, kind of get these non they're allocated funds that weren't actually spent. Mm-hmm. Where are you doing that? Are you doing it at the wing level? Do you have to go to the major command level? Like where, where do you have to do that? It's usually the major command level where they're doing the sweep. Okay. So making sure that they then know, here's what your priority is. So the higher up in, there'll be multiple versions of this happening because everyone knows that the next level above them is going to come in and sweep their money also. Yeah. <laughs> so they want to spend as much as they, as they can before it gets taken up for that next level. So it's going to happen progressively. And, you know, the the further down the line you are, the earlier the sweep needs to happen in order to make sure the money is spent. So, so but oh. but making sure that, that your priority is understood all the way up the line and understand, you know, and being like, hey, and we can do at least the first phase of this for a relatively modest sum of money. Um you know, that I don't need to do all of it right now. I can do it incrementally, which is actually where those IDIQ vehicles become really handy because you can take small amounts and put them toward, towards the project you're trying to do rather than having to have every dollar you need and having full implementation on day one. You're sort of spreading it out as you get the appropriations available to you to put them towards the, uh, that project. When, and maybe this was just my experience when I kind of got exposed to the funding side. Uh, but just like you said, so there's uh, contracting is actually waiting for the dollars uh, to actually get to them. You know, it's we, we yeah. end up, um, you know, new fiscal year starts October 1st. And like you said, sometimes it's a six month delay. So contracting gets the dollars in call it March or April. And then just like you said, that money gets swept up in June that money June, starts July, being, yeah. yeah, June, July, yeah. that money starts getting pulled back uphill to the higher levels above the wing. So now you're in a squadron and you want to spend money. So you can't really spend any funds until after March or April. And then you have March or April to June or July to actually spend money that you've been allocated to spend money on. And then once June, July happens, then it goes squadron funds go back to the group and group funds go back to the wing and wing and so on. And so what ends up happening is you have to go back to the leadership and then leadership above those leadership and say, hey, I would like those funds that you previously allocated to me. I would like some of those back to spend on this thing. So you really have like a three month window to spend without having to ask uh, for permission to spend your own money that's been allocated, uh, which is unfortunate. Yeah, which is also why it's important to do that pre-planning and pre-positioning. Because even though you know we're, it's October 10th, we don't have appropriations in place. The, we've got a CR that goes through uh, the beginning of, of December. 
that means that you can continue to spend the money with, there's some exceptions, but you can continue to spend money at the same rate it was appropriated last year. You can't start a new program, but you can spend money. It, It makes that October through December, through January, through February period, a really time, good time to be going in and pre-positioning. So getting your contract vehicles lined up, getting your program, your, your statement of requirements lined up so that everything is ready to go as soon as the money gets there, uh, that you're not waiting around. It actually helps your contracting officers do that as well because it lets them shift some of their workload back uh, to, to its normal pace, its normal rhythms. The other part of it, though, is getting involved earlier in the budget cycle. So making sure that you're communicating, because if you think about it, a budget, I'll go back to when I was at GSA, it was confirmed in December of 2017, which was fiscal 18 at that point in time. The fiscal 19 budget was uh, was being finalized by, the, by OMB at that point, getting ready. They would send it to Congress February-ish of the next year. So the first budget I got to work on as the administrator, so as the head of the agency, was the fiscal 20 budget. And fiscal 20 was my last full year there. Because I left uh, first. So when you think about it, the more you can get your, it's a long game in terms of budgeting, trying to get your requirements in early. We're arguing that if there is a change, if there's an executive order that deals with things like supply chain, or um, AI technologies or others, and we, we see these more and more frequently, or Congress is doing something on these, that might be the impetus for saying some of these funds should come to us, or we should be able to implement them uh, and get some exceptions. But the more you can tie things to that rather than this would be good, sadly, that's not enough of a reason to, you know, it, it's a fight for those funds. It's a fight for every dollar. Well, I think that's what, you know, having that perspective that there are, there are tens or hundreds of people in different organizations trying to get funding for their things. So it's not just you and you're the only person asking for these dollars, which is, it makes sense. But the, um, shoot, I forgot what I was going to say. Terrible interviewer, right? The, uh, but I think, oh, well, what I was going to ask was that, uh, well, it was, so you're saying if we're under a CR, you can't, you can keep spending as previously, but you can't allocate new funds to new projects or to an IDIQ or any of that because that would be a new expense and not a baked in expense from previous years. Is that correct? I'm speaking pretty generally, but you, so okay. it's not that you can't put money on an IDIQ. If the IDIQ already exists and it's something you've been doing all along, you can continue to fund it. It's if it's a new start to a new program and it's, and each agency interprets that a little bit differently as to when it's really a new start, when it's a continuation of something you've already been doing. Um, Congress will actually write in exceptions also to say, well, we don't mean that to apply to this, or you, but you can't spend, spend money on this. I see. Okay. But during that, during that CR, there, you know, the government continues to function, which means we're spending money. Mm-hmm. And it's not just all in salaries. You're continuing to pay for things. You'll actually find a lot of agencies go in now at the end of a of a calendar of a fiscal year they'll say well this is a need of this year it's a bona fide need it's also a need of next year so i'm going to put it under contract now mm-hmm. and then so it's not a new start next year i see so then when you're under a cr it's been a contract so you can keep allocating to it or so begin you can to keep allocate. putting money towards it yeah 
Now, if you're going to double, triple, quadruple the amount of funding you're putting on it, that might raise some eyebrows also. Yeah. Um, but but it it gives you some some ability to keep moving forward as we you know, as we struggle. CRs are the last time we didn't have a CR for at least one of the agencies was 2005. So I mean we've been yeah it's a wave of the future. It's been a long time since all yeah. of the, all of the budgets have all the appropriations bills have been done on time. Yeah, so it's it's more common than than not uh, in recent history. Yeah. So, it's, Ben, are you, you? It's almost oh. exclusively the yeah, same yeah. affairs in the last seventeen years. Yeah. Yeah. So, Bender, unless you have any more kind of cyber questions, I was going to move over to GSA real quick. Let's go for it. All right. So, so GSA is uh, I, I'm I'm blanking on the acronym, but you can help me out with that. But uh, so, can you kind of explain how GSA is is different than the kind of innovation side and and how the government is spending money? So GSA, it's the General Services Administration. It's a um, CFO Act agency. It's not a cabinet agency. It generally exists. It does. You know, it's got three main things. It does first, it it takes care of public buildings, so courthouses, construction. It it, it has 371 million square feet of office space that it's managing for the federal government, either owned or leased. That's a lot. Um, and then on. The next thing it does is a lot of government-wide policy. So it does the federal acquisition regulations along with DOD and NASA. It does travel regulations, which I know are everyone's favorites. It does, you know, shared services policies, things along those lines, often government-wide policy. It then has the federal acquisition service. And they exist to help other agencies buy things. They set up, they don't do weapon systems, but they will, pretty much anything else, they'll help with, they manage the fleet for the federal government, um, like the motor vehicles, uh, uh, electric vehicles, things along those lines. They set up something called GSA schedules, which are, are large multiple award IDIQ contracts, where the, last time I looked at about 14,000 companies on these contracts, where you can go in and, and run abbreviated purchases for commercial items. So it's a, uh, there's competition, but it's not this, you know, it doesn't take as long as it does to go and do a brand new competition for an open and it, um, in the process. So it's a speed, it's a way of speeding it up. Prices are, price ceilings are pre-negotiated. It then doesn't, and it has other vehicles like that where it's pre-positioning the contract vehicles so that agencies can come in using their own contracting officers, make awards against those contracts. Uh, telecom contracts, another good example. So EIS. But then it has a, Another way that it helps agencies where it has assisted acquisition, where agencies come in and say, we want to buy um, something specifically, and GSA will provide the contracting officer and will actually do the contracting on behalf of that agency. Now, that becomes really interesting when you get to R&D, because GSA is not an R&D agency. There's nothing in that mission that says they should be the, you know, th that they're buying an innovative technology for innovation's sake or investing in innovation for innovation's sake. Instead, it, they're uh, facilitating that innovation on behalf of other agencies. So they can do the contracting as long as the agency is bringing the decision-making capabilities and, and their input into it. They can also pre-position contracts that have R&D task orders underneath them. So if you look at GSA's OASIS contract, which is a very large, I think it's $50 billion plus contract that they have, um, there 
there are uh, CLINs that are for R&D. And there are pools where the companies were assessed on their R&D uh, background to get on contracts. So it's another way of trying to speed up some of the R&D that takes place. It's done as a contract, not as a grant, but it does help with, with making that happen. Does that help? I, I don't want it to sound like I'm a commercial for GSA. I love no, working there, but haven't been there a few years. So, Yeah, and it, it does make sense. And because there's no, in my understanding, is there's no actual funds at GSA. So GSA is not like an AFWorks where it's like, hey, we work with AFWorks and AFWorks pays for this. Oh, the funds have to come from somewhere else. Just GSA yeah. is the contracting vehicle. Yeah, so GSA is the contracting vehicle and, and sometimes the contracting officer. Actually, yeah. really interesting is if you look at the Federal Acquisition Services side that does all of this, they don't actually get a direct appropriation from Congress to do that. They actually make their money by being by fees they charge for using their contract vehicles or for being the contracting officer. And they usually run from like three quarters of a percent of the award to maybe four percent of the award, depending on how sophisticated and complicated it is. But it also yeah. puts in a pretty good measure for if 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 their contract vehicle doesn't work, you don't come back and they don't get them. You know, so th they've actually got um, some measures in there that make them very responsible to their customers. I see. That makes sense. And then is GSA advantage, so where people are buying just regular stuff with their government purchase card or GPC, that's also, mm -hmm. those are those pre um, predetermined pricing structures? So that's the GSA schedules, uh, the multiple gotcha. award schedules. Um, and it's it's one of the ways to get into those. And you yes, you can do it with your government purchase card. You can do you, you can run a task order competition. Depending on how big it is, you sometimes you have to get three bids, or you have to you know make it available to anyone uh, who's in that that special item number. So think of it within that CLIN who, who can do that work to bid on it. But it's a it's a much faster way of getting those awards done. And you can negotiate pricing discounts there as well. So they put a ceiling oh, nice. price on. Agencies can ask for a discount. And when they do, they usually get one. Oh, that's cool. I did not know that. That's uh, so, yeah. and that, and that's what Always I think. Always worth asking. Yeah, exactly. It can't hurt the, uh, well, and I think that's one of the things that people uh, uh, that may not understand. Cause they're like, why do you need all these innovation, you know, sibbers and all these different vehicles to purchase innovation, but because the normal everyday purchasing process is through a GSA type, uh, you know, whether it's the schedules where I would say in, in my perspective, a lot of the purchasing happens through GSA. GSA is kind of where most yeah. of the buying is happening, at least as a non-contract officer end user. Uh, but then if you're trying to buy something that doesn't exist in GSA or doesn't exist at all, and you're trying to have it created like in the innovation space, that's why you need these other vehicles to actually make products that we say, Hey, we have a need. We don't have a product or we don't, we have a product that we don't know about because nobody knows about our cyber threes. Uh, and then that's why we go to our AFWorks or those different organizations, uh, to make those purchases. Yeah. And it makes sense when you think about it because routine, regular, uh, contract goods that every agency is going to use or, you might as well do it once and not have everyone duplicating that effort so that you can use your contracting officers for those very specialized needs. So, you know, within the department for advanced R&D, for weapon systems, for you know, things like that, um, rather than having them be used for a regular purchase of, of just, you know, your standard desktop computers. Um, 
or the or your office supplies or things along those lines. Everyone's doing those. There's not that much differentiation between them, and they, they can all be customized within the GSA contract vehicle. Now, other organizations, NASA Soup does something similar with IT products. Um, NIH has some similar. So there, I mean, there are other ways to get this done as well. GSA by far has the broadest portfolio, though, of what's offered. Yeah, and I think one thing that's also really cool that happens in GSA is, is, and I don't think it has to be a major command. You know, it can be a lettered or a numbered Air Force. But if they say, hey, this is the purchase that we expect may be made frequently, that is, they can make a project, uh, a product list, and then you can kind of pick and choose, make a very bespoke purchase, even though it's a massive purchase, say it's a $60,000 purchase, it can already be pre-approved. So once you hit those, hey, you're spending over 2,500 or you're spending over 10,000, depending on the purchase, now it can already be made. So you can swipe and spend, maybe not swipe, but you can spend 40, 50, 60,000 if you're, someone in the organization has already created a purchase that you would like. Is that right? right? And the BPA is, yeah, BPA is against schedule, blanket purchase agreements, allow agencies to go in and sort of pre-negotiate so that there can be that as needed purchasing. They've already done the negotiating um, and that up to certain thresholds, you can go in and make those orders. Yeah, and I think that's good because- a lot. Well, and because you look at, so a perfect, or the example that I'm thinking of is, uh, so now in Air Education and Training Command, specifically 19th Air Force, who is mm-hmm. under that, um, they were like, hey, common ITDs, which is a low-cost, unclassified virtual reality simulator. And instead of saying, hey, everybody buy these and individually have to make a forty to $60,000 purchase with doing the full contracting process, they just mm-hmm. said, hey, you're going to buy a chair, you're going to buy a TV, you're going to buy a computer mm-hmm. to run it, you're going to buy software. And it's all there. And then you just say, I want all of these things, buy. And then uh, you're able to do that. So not every base who's trying to buy them has to kind of rework this contract. Right. And the other good thing is, that allows this, it allows someone within the organization to standardize so that they make sure that what's bought in different parts of the organization will work together. Because um, yeah. you don't necessarily want everyone going out and buying their own customized you know, laptop. You want some pretty strict requirements around what it is that's going to be on your network. And it lets them put that in place in a way that they control what's bought in a much easier way that still ends up working much better for, for the end user to get it quickly. So I think, because uh, we're going to have to let you go real quick. I know you got something else going on. But uh, so one last thing I want to kind of uh, hit the highlights. So if an end user is kind of struggling to find SIBRs or companies or funding, uh, I think IDIQ through GSA as you hit commercialization is a, is a big thing that can be useful. Uh, and then AFWorks does weekly uh, webinars or uh, calls that can help get you smart mm-hmm. on it. And then uh, funding, looking for uh, money that gets swept up close to the end of the fiscal year. Uh, is there anything else that you would kind of vector a end user innovator in to, to help them find success when they're working on uh, SIBRs or, or any of those innovative contracts? I think those are all good tools. Um, only other thing I'd mention is make sure you're talking to contracting as much as you can because they can't read minds. Um, so the, to the extent that <laughs> when you want something, you, imagine like when you send your spouse to the store to buy something, you can say, I want X brand. Well, you can't do that in the government. 
So if you had to instead describe what you want without putting a brand around it and say like really what the requirements are, it becomes a little bit harder, but it's still you and someone who knows you really well. And so they're able to intuit what's really important to you. And the government, you've got to be really explicit at each phase of that. And it's not, not the person that you know, you're sharing the refrigerator with. So you've got, you know, they don't know all of that information about you and you're buying it on a much broader scale. So all of those things that they're trying to do, you don't want to put them in a, in a situation where they have to assume that you, you know, that you um, value the fizziness of your, of your seltzer over the, the flavor in it. Um, mm -hmm. They need to know which one's more important to you. So the more you talk to them, the better you're going to get a result. Yeah, I like that. And that's, that's a good perspective. Because yeah, I talked to contracting and sadly, we kind of separated rather quickly just because it was like, hey, we're working on Cyber 2, Stratfy, TACFIs, and they were like, this isn't, this isn't our lane, um, which it very much could be. But obviously, there, there are other people who do more of that. So that's good. Yeah, communicate with contracting. Well, Emily, I appreciate uh, you being here. Uh, normally, we offer people the opportunity to reach out. If you'd like people to reach out, do you want to give uh, an email or anything or we can have them email us I'd and we can, to. Um, Oh yeah. Let me give you, let me find you my email address here at, at uh, George Mason's E Murph, E M U R P H seven at gmu.edu. Great. We'll have it in the show notes. So everybody, if you want to uh, okay. get her email, it'll be down in the show notes. And then if you want to contact us, let us know how well or uh, poorly we're doing. And then uh, if you'd like to be on the show or just, uh, uh, contact any of our end users that we've been uh, chatting with info at kodiakshack.com and then check out our website uh, kodiakshack.com Emily is also writing a lot of good stuff uh, that she puts out about sibbers and everything that's actually how I uh, found her so uh, keep looking for Emily and uh, there and maybe we'll post some of her articles on our website so we can uh, let people know about her but thanks again Emily I appreciate you being, uh, being on the show thank you both it was a lot of fun Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.